optimal minimal. At this altitude, I can run flat out for a half mile before my hands start shaking. Can I answer your personal question? Now it is seen a perfect time. I'm a cybernetic organism, living tissue over a metal endoskeleton. This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. I get asked all the time what I would take if I could only take one supplement. The answer is invariably Athletic Greens. I view it as all-in-one nutritional insurance. I recommended it, in fact, in the four-hour body. This is more than 10 years ago, and I did not get paid to do so. With approximately 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients, you'd be very hard-pressed to find a more nutrient-dense and comprehensive formula on the market. It has multivitamins, multimineral greens complex, probiotics and prebiotics for gut health, an immunity formula, digestive enzymes, adaptogens, and much more. I usually take it once or twice a day just to make sure I've covered my bases if I miss anything I'm not aware of. Of course, I focus on nutrient-dense meals to begin with. That's the basis. But Athletic Greens makes it easy to get a lot of nutrition when whole foods aren't readily available. From travel packets, I always have them in my bag when I'm zipping around. Right now, Athletic Greens is giving my audience a special offer on top of their all-in-one formula, which is a free vitamin D supplement and five free travel packs with your first subscription purchase. Many of us are deficient in vitamin D. I found that true for myself, which is usually produced in our bodies from sun exposure. So adding a vitamin D supplement to your daily routine is a great option for additional immune support. Support your immunity, gut health, and energy by visiting athleticgreens.com slash TFS. You'll receive up to a year's supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your subscription. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash TFS, as in Tim Ferriss show. athleticgreens.com slash TFS. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash acquire. That's linkedin.com slash acquire. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, ladies and germs. This is Tim Ferriss, and welcome to another episode of The Tim Ferriss Show. I am recording this from my secret hideout in the mountains of Utah, an undisclosed location doing undisclosed things for perhaps future book experimentation. In any case, this is the Tim Ferriss show where I deconstruct or attempt to deconstruct world-class performers of all types, hedge fund managers, chess prodigies, military strategists, you name it. And we do have a very exciting episode. We have Alain de Botton as a guest, and I'm going to describe him and explain why you should stick around. But first, some house cleaning real fast or housekeeping, I suppose. And that is a giveaway. Uh, it's been a long time since I gave away a trip, and I've been thinking about escaping to Australia, for instance, and other places. So I thought maybe you'd like to do the same. And by that, I mean I'm giving away a vacation anywhere in the world. I've partnered with Stack Social and Boots and All to offer you a free ride around the globe. Plus, there are tons of other awesome prizes. So check it out, fourhourworkweek.com forward slash trip. Spell it all out, fourhourworkweek.com forward slash trip. Doesn't cost anything. And if you sign up, you'll get a unique link. Every time you share that on social, you receive another five entries to improve your odds. So hope to see you on the road. Check it out. 4hourworkweek.com forward slash trip. It's pretty sweet. 
The guest that we have today is Alain de Botton, A-L-A-I-N D-E. B-O-T-T-O-N. He is many things, but I think of him as a philosopher of the most practical breed. And as I've mentioned before and written about quite extensively, I view pragmatic philosophy as a set of rules for making better decisions in life, ideally in high-stress environments. So as you know, probably I'm a huge fan of Stoic philosophy. Alain. In 1997, he turned away from writing novels and instead wrote an extended essay with the funny title, How Proust Can Change Your Life, which became an unlikely blockbuster in the self-help genre. No one expected it to happen, and bang, suddenly he was on the map. His subsequent books take on all sorts of fundamental worries of modern life. Am I happy? Uh, what do I do with status anxiety, etc.? And this is informed by his deep reading and philosophy, but also by his novelist's eye for small, perfect moments. It's a very cool combination. His books have been described as, quote, philosophy of everyday life and are on a diverse range of subjects, including love, travel, architecture, religion, and work. His bestsellers include Essays in Love, How Proust Can Change Your Life, Status Anxiety, and the Architecture of Happiness. And I'm going to include links to all of these in the show notes at fourhourworkweek.com forward slash podcast. So everything we mention in the episode, all of the goodies will be there. Fourhourworkweek.com forward slash podcast. In 2008, de Botton also helped start the School of Life, which is awesome. He's, he, this began in London, and it's a social enterprise determined to make learning and therapy relevant in today's uptight culture. His goal, through any and all of his mediums, is to help clients learn how to live wisely and well. And since I am also a student in that realm, I wanted to get him on the phone. Many of you asked for this conversation, this interview. I loved it, and I hope you do as well. Say hi to him on Twitter. Let him know what you thought of the interview. If you have any follow-up questions, it's at Alain de Botton, A-L-A-I-N-D-E-B-O-T-T-O-N on the Twitters. Please enjoy our conversation. Thanks for listening. Good sir. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I appreciate you making the time to have a conversation from the other side of the pond. And I will admit something very embarrassing. The good sir, the kind sir, the, uh, the so on and so forth is because I've, I've searched far and wide <laughs> to discover how to say your name correctly and didn't want to say it incorrectly because I've had guests on like Maria Popova, Pavel Tatsulin, who have had their names massacred every time that I've actually heard it said. So how do you pronounce your name properly? Tim, you're so lucky to be called Tim. Um, <laughs> I was born on this earth with the name Alain de Botton. Alain de Botton. So, I mean, anything you can manage. Just don't call me Elaine. You can call me Alan. Um, but I don't, I don't care. It's just one of those things that happened. Do you, um, when you're speaking with native English speakers, how do you introduce yourself? I just say, I'm Alain de Botton and, you know, see what they say. See um, how they respond. <laughs> um, yeah. But, you know, every, every, every school kid in England has, has done, you know, four or five years of reluctant French. And, and there's always a, there's always a, 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 a French teaching book with, with a character called Alain. So they can just about manage that. Um, but, but I mean, it's really all my fault and I'm deeply apologetic. And, um, what can I say? It's one of those things. That's what globalization brings us. It's like Pavel, uh, when he orders coffee at Starbucks, he just says Pablo because that's what they're going to come up with anyway. Uh, well, well, that, that also leads me to ask, and of course, we'll dig into a lot in this conversation, and I'm very excited to finally be chatting. This has been a long time in the making. When people ask you, what do you do? How do you answer that? 
Well, look, the easiest thing to say is that I'm a writer, but but that doesn't really cover it because um, writers come in all shapes and sizes. If the conversation is allowed to go on a little longer, what I tend to tell them is I'm interested in emotional intelligence, in emotional health. Um, it's, it's a kind of topic that broadly pertains to all the things that make life difficult, that are coming from the kind of emotional centers of our brain and functioning. Um, you know, sometimes people joke about first world problems, right? They, they kind of, they, they laugh at how we are in the United States or the UK. And they say, you know, you guys just uh, have got first world problems. And it's supposed to be a joke. It's, it's like people who are, you know, quibbling because the, uh, you know, the Chardonnay is not chilled enough or whatever. Um, I actually think that there is such a thing as first world problems, not seen as a joke, but seen genuinely, which is really the problems of advanced civilization uh, that we're living in now. When the majority of people have got enough food, they've got a, a secure shelter, but life is still very tough in all sorts of ways. So it's not the old kind of toughness when it was really about survival. It's toughness of a different sort. It's about uh, trying to um, make sure that your brief time on earth is well spent, that your talents have been properly explored, that you're in a satisfying relationship, that you understand yourself, that you have a purpose, etc. Now, in many parts of the world, these, sounds, these things sound like luxuries, and indeed they are, but they are daily realities in, in countries you know, like the United States. There are about 20 countries in the world where these kinds of concerns are active. Um, and these are the concerns that interest me, you know, um, they're concerns, as I say, around uh, relationships, workplace satisfaction, ambition, community, meaning. I mean, these words, we can go into them. They sound a little nebulous when you first mention them, but it's the kind of higher order uh, questions that people start to ask themselves once the basic supply of food and shelter have been assured. Right. And it seems like uh, when I look at, for instance, the cases of suicide that I've encountered in my own life, uh, friends who've committed suicide in, in every case, they're far enough up Maslow's hierarchy of needs that they've satisfied shelter, hunger or food, etc. And they, I think one of the challenges perhaps is that when people get to a certain point and they're grappling with self-actualization and so on, there, there are few, uh, sort of flies in the ointment. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Um, uh, and feel free, obviously, to, to, to strike me down with a sharp blow. But the number one is that many of the terms they're grappling with, like you pointed out, are in some ways nebulous. They don't have the topics or challenges, don't necessarily have clean, clear, uh, evolutionary answers, uh, like I am hungry, therefore I should find food. And in some cases, we realize that what we thought would, would address the angst or anxiety that we have, such as uh, status or money, in fact, uh, appears not to provide any type of lasting relief from those types of dilemmas. Um, how did you become interested in these questions? I, and of course, I mean, your, your books, for instance, have been described as a philosophy of everyday life, and uh, you've written about all sorts of things across the board. But how did you, how did you fall into or become attracted to these types of questions and the philosophy of everyday life, if you think that's a fair description, um, in the first place? Sure. Sure. Well, I, I tend to um, start always with myself. So I'm a very personal writer. I'm not, I'm the opposite of an academic. Um, I'm looking for uh, answers to the problems that I experience. I start with myself as the first case study. And I think 
if I'm getting myself right, if I'm understanding myself right, by definition, I'll be getting lots of other people right as well. So, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm a laboratory of one. Of course, I step out of that. I read a lot. I meet a lot of people. I talk, etc. But as it were, I tend to start the emotional energy comes from, you know, the first patient me. Um, and, uh, you, you know, I, I'm the one with all the problems. And um, they tend to also just happen to be problems that other people have as well. So quite early on in my life, I realized that there were two things which were deeply problematic for me. The first one was the area of love and relationships. And the second was the area of work, that these were things that were giving me real trouble. Um, I think, you know, I've come to see with age that these are things, that there wasn't a coincidence, that these are the two areas of massive insecurity, doubt, and most importantly, lack of guidance. You know, we, we, we live in a society where we very much believe in freedom and individual um, self-realization, which is fantastic from one point of view and leaves us desperately searching for guidance, clues, etc. And we're left very much alone. You know, I had a so-called elite education. I went to uh, Cambridge University in the UK. I, I got a good degree, etc. So I was a kind of well-educated citizen of the modern world. And yet, boy, oh boy, I was so lost. Um, I just didn't know, you know, I hadn't had enough of the right sort of conversations. I hadn't met the right sort of people. Broadly speaking, I wasn't living in a therapeutic environment. I, I don't mean Oprah. I don't mean a psychoanalyst. I mean, uh, uh, um, literally in the ancient Greek sense, therapy, which is the kind of nourishment and nurture of the soul, the inner bit, the precious bit of you. Um, there just wasn't any support. Uh, I, was, I felt very cut off from that. And gradually, I felt my way through books, through conversations, um, to a kind of way of living where I could just begin to understand some of the things that I was suffering from. But if I were to diagnose my younger self, I was a classic example of, you know, somebody living in, uh, you know, a prosperous world city in the middle of a kind of heyday of capitalism, um, uh, suffering from all the angst that comes with that. Uh, I'd been taught that happiness personal happiness came from finding one very, very special person with whom there would be an ecstatic sense of communion. Um, and uh, she, it happened to be, and I would meet, it would be wonderful. My all sense of loneliness, loss and drift would be healed. Uh, there would be, it would be like a, a, a sort of secularized version of a meeting with a deity. And I was on the lookout in bars, clubs, dinner parties for this person, this, this angelic deity who'd, who'd graciously come down to earth. And that, that, that was going to solve my, my love problem that I also was facing a work problem. And the, the kind of ideology I'd grown up with was you're going to work very, very hard. Uh, and then you will find a precious bit of you and you will put that on a commercial basis, whatever it is, that inner precious core, you will turn into money. In, in good time, uh, you know, you will be both creative and also financially productive, etc. Now, I'm not saying that either of these things is impossible, but they're very hard and we're very alone with them, very alone indeed. Um, and this struck me and uh, my career in many ways was designed to try and find some answers that would work for me and would work for others. And by answers, I don't only mean solutions. I also mean interpretations. You know, when you're, when you're suffering from something, you don't necessarily always want or expect there to be a fix, but at least just understanding what it is that's the problem, uh, and, and express kind of eloquently. That's at least half the battle. And I didn't have any of that. And that's what my career has been spent trying to do. 
What did you study in undergrad? Was it your undergraduate studies at Cambridge? I studied uh, what they called over there history of ideas, which was a wonderful course that really looked at the evolution of big concepts through time um, and how attitudes to different things had changed. So we would study a word like freedom and look at all the different ways in which that word has changed and you know, how differently it was interpreted, say, in the 5th century AD to the way it was interpreted in the 18th century, the way it was interpreted in America versus in China, etc. So that was really fun and, and, and really good. And from, from that point, grappling with all these issues, as many people do, um, what put you on the, the, uh, the map, so to speak, as a, as a discusser, uh, explorer of these ideas? Uh, you have, of course, uh, a, a very well-known extended essay called How Proust Can Change Your Life. That's another one I had to look up before this interview. I'm going to admit I had to look up <laughs> P-R-O-U-S-T to double check and make sure that it, I would be pronouncing it somewhat close to correct. Perfect. How Proust Can Change Your Life. Is that the essay that kind of put you into the mainstream or slipstream or, or were there other ways that you were able to test your ideas on a, on a large public scale before that? So, I, when I graduated, um, I was very aware that time was short and that there are immense pressures on young people to prove themselves pretty early on. And I felt that um, very much. I, I'd come from a family of high achievers and I was born with a sort of sense of like, you know, you've got to prove yourself. And um, it, it was a kind of madness. I, I now recognize it was, it was not easy or the best thing. I don't think that's a, a great ideology to have, but but there we have it. So, no sooner did I uh, graduate that I, I really started asking myself the biggest questions, like, where do I want my life to go? I applied for various jobs, but I graduated in the midst of a recession. It was very hard to find... What, when was this? This was 91. Uh... This was the summer of 1991. And um, a lot of my friends were just, you know finding things to do, taking jobs in bars, etc. And I asked myself, what do I really want to do? And I thought, what I really want to do is write books. Um, and I dare to admit that to myself in a kind of late night session of, of self-honesty. And I thought, well, I, why don't I just start now? And I'd been thinking a lot about writing and self-expression and all the rest of it. And so I kind of gradually felt my way to writing my first book, which was published when I was just 22 um, and it was a book called Essays in Love. In the US, it was titled On Love. And um, I put my heart and soul into it. It's a very intimate d- dissection of a love story. And um, the book did very well. I mean, very well, certainly for a 22, 23-year-old. And it gave me the confidence and the courage to carry on. And uh, relatively soon after, I then wrote what turned out to be my breakthrough book, which was called How Proust Can Change Your Life. And thanks to American readers and uh, reviewers, that book did extremely well. And it was an unlikely moment um, because here was a book written about a early 20th century great French writer that was at the same time a self-help book. Um, and I deliberately chose to kind of mash up these two genres, a kind of scholarly essay and a self-help book. It wasn't just a, a kind of um, a sly commercial trick. There was serious intent, which is that 
I always felt that high culture, by which I mean, you know, literature, philosophy, uh, you know, plays, etc. These things do not just belong in the ivory tower. They have a richness to them, which can be absorbed and should be transmitted to the widest possible public. This is heresy among the universities that believe, uh, partly for economic reasons, that only if you enroll in their sacred uh, fraternity do you really have the right tools to be able to interpret and enjoy the masterpieces of civilization. I passionately disagreed with that. I am by nature a popularizer and a democrat of the mind, and I did not appreciate that kind of cloistered vision of knowledge. So I took a lot of what I've been thinking and reading and really tried to express it so clearly. And I would write sentences 20 times to make sure that they could be understood by everyone. Um, I would try material out on people who'd been educated and people who hadn't been educated at all. And I wanted to make sure that it would work at all levels. And so that was a, an extra layer of work. And I'm you know, really proud and happy to say it did work. And the book proved itself around the world. And so I was in the very odd and fortunate position that come the age of 27, I'd had this, you know, book that had worked. Um, and and I was kind of, uh, you know, I was aloft, um, at least, you know, for a time. So that's, yeah, that's how I ended up doing what I do. And, if, and for people who have not read, uh, let's just take On Love and How Proust Can Change Your Life, was On Love autobiographical? Was it a novel? Was it a mix of the two? Neither? It, it, it was a mix of the two, because Tim, you know, what I love about novels is the local color, the intimacy of language, the kind of, the sense that you're suddenly in a real place, and you know what the weather's like, and etc. What drives me crazy about novels is that sometimes you feel that the novelist is cleverer than they're allowing their characters to be. You feel that there's all sorts of stuff that is discussed in non-fiction ways that somehow just doesn't find its way into the novel where it's all supposed to be about showing, not telling. And I didn't like those rules. So my novel was explicitly an attempt to tell a love story as well as show it, to have a mixture of analysis and also more sensory descriptive bits, because I wanted to touch the reader and make them think. I didn't want to tell just another ordinary love story. I wanted to analyze love in the course of a love story so that the kind of the, the knowledge bits would be well wrapped up in some of the excitement of a love story. So it was it was kind of trying out a genre. And in all my works, I've always been a little impatient by the the kind of models out there for how to write, like a classic novel must be, you know, X pages long, must feature. Da, da, da. I, I've always been provoked to slightly pull at those rules. And um, so just as I wrote a self-help book, but, you know, it was half about this great 20th century writer and that's not normal. So I was writing a novel, but that wasn't quite the normal way of writing the novel. So I was impatient with some of the, the rules that writers get given. What... Um which which writers or books most influenced your approach or thinking about uh, those two books, On Love, or we could focus on how Proust can change your life? Um, look, the books that I always most enjoyed were the books, first of all, where you feel the presence of an author in the text who feels like a nice person. I know that could sound kind of trivial, but um, it, it just sounds like someone that you could kind of get to know and have a, have a chat with. I mean, if we think of someone like Thoreau, um, Thoreau sounds like a really great guy. Uh, he's friendly. He's sometimes sarcastic, but he's always witty. He's humane. He's generous. He's sometimes impatient, etc. But you kind of get a sense of 
a person. Um, you get that sometimes reading great writers' letters. You know, if you read, I don't know, the journals of uh, Nathaniel Hawthorne, for example, um, you get you get a flavour of of a person. So, uh, um, someone like the French philosopher Montaigne was a great influence. He was a man Definitely. who, writing in the 16th century, again, just spoke in this wonderfully direct, intimate way. So, yes, he was telling you about Plato and he was telling you about history, etc. But you always felt, I'm actually with someone, and I've always really appreciated the personal voice and um, and that really influenced how I wanted to, to to write and be with my readers and I, I will admit when it comes to uh, most philosophy I'm kind of a one trick pony uh, I've, I've really read a lot of stoic philosophy but outside of that uh, I'm woefully inadequate so I'm going to ask a question that you've no doubt been asked before that may be really irritating but how can Proust change your life what is the uh, what is the structure of the book or what is the um what what are some of the theses or or concepts discussed? Sure. so um proust is really a philosopher more than a novelist and his book is about the search for how you can stop wasting your life and start to appreciate life and live fully so the title is very accurate the title of his long book is in search of lost time and it's literally one man's search for how you can stop wasting your life and it follows the uh, narrator hero as he tries out three things that he thinks may turn out to be the meaning of life the first things he first thing he tries is social status a position in society and uh, a lot of the book follows how he tries to get in with the top people in paris he wants to get in with uh, nowadays they would be the celebrities the business people etc but in those days they were the aristocrats and so he's trying to get in with them he's trying to make a name for himself etc and it follows it's very funny it's warm it's self-deprecating but essentially the search for the journey he does manage to get into the inner sanctum but he discovers that actually these people are often brutal brutish not that interesting and not really interested in him properly and he has a kind of moment of uh, existential despair around this goal of social status he then moves on to another possible goal of life which is romantic love and a lot of the novel is spent tracing the love affair of the narrator for a beautiful late teenage girl called Albertine who's charming headstrong gamine the kind of boyish uh, charmer and um Virtually, there are all sorts of disappointments, and he realizes some of the real limitations of love, which is that we go to love because we think that someone will understand us fully, that we can be fulfilled totally in the arms of another person, etc. And gently and with humor and generosity, Proust unpicks some of these hopes. And again, gradually, we realize that love, like social status, is perhaps not the meaning of life. So what is? Well, Proust ends up, like many writers, defending his own art and craft. He defends art as the meaning of life. And what he means, what, what he means by art is... It's kind of like, don't ask a barber if you need exactly, a haircut kind of situation. Exactly. So it's a big, big PR job on, on, on art. But he's more generous. You can certainly read him in ways that are more generous than merely art, as in, you know, you've got to immediately enroll on a fine art degree or something. He's not saying that. He is seeing the great works of art, not all art, but the great works of art as examples of life as it's lived to the full. And he's interested in, in, particularly in certain artists. So he talks a lot about the painter, the Dutch painter Vermeer, who he thinks... Oh, amazing. 
Vermeer. That, that's right. And what he appreciates is that Vermeer painted daily life, but he saw in daily life an extraordinary richness uh, and, uh, and, 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 you know, level of kind of psychological involvement, etc. That he was, he was living life to the full. So uh, he, another painter he really liked was a French 18th century painter, Chardin, who rather like Vermeer painted modest interiors, um, families around the kitchen table, loaves of bread. He painted about 20 loaves of bread. Um, one of the first painters to kind of spend so long with bread. And really, it's a kind of, you know... It's, it's very French. Yeah, it's very French. Yeah. But, but it's also, you know, it's also a kind of secularized Christian message, which is really that ordinary, modest life has grace, has, you know, is in contact with the glory and dignity of the universe kind of thing, to put it... Right, to put the it, sacred and the... Exactly, profane. exactly. And, um, and, and this is what makes Proust such an enchanting writer, that he, he is so interested in daily life, and he wants to make daily life magical. And that's what he resents and hates about snobbery, because snobbery constantly makes you think that there's a group of people out there who are special, more special than the ordinary people, um, etc. And Proust, you know, the son of a kind of haute bourgeois, a wealthy family, etc., has this tremendously deeply, profoundly democratic vision um, about the value of each individual and the capacity of an artistic gaze to tease out that value and therefore thereby make uh, life meaningful. So, you know, that's some of what um, I discovered and that provided the spine for my own uh, study of Proust uh, that, that I wrote. So I have two uh, immediate responses. The first is, have you seen a documentary called Tim's Vermeer by any chance? I haven't. Oh, it is spectacular. It is about a computer scientist and a very famous entrepreneur in the desktop editing world who is an incredible inventor also uh, outside of those fields and decides he wants to determine how Vermeer painted the way he painted and goes through many different attempts, builds many different tools to try to replicate Vermeer paintings. It's, it's a very fascinating, hilarious, uh, and, um, insightful look at uh, yet another obsessive <laughs> not saying you're obsessive but the world is full of interesting obsessives the second uh is uh, how did reading proust or writing this book as as you really dug into it uh affect how you prioritized or lived your life how did you how did you incorporate that into your decisions priorities or life um well look i think the liberation of that book for me was um, going up to a really big name, an authority that was spoken of by professors in reverential tones. And what I did with that is to fire some pretty naive questions at this kind of colossus of kind of Western culture. And I really asked the most essential but the most naive question, which is, how can you help me to live? Uh, and I think in a way, this is the best question to ask anyone one meets. In many ways, that's what you tend to ask in your podcasts. Um, it's such a valuable question to ask. Very often, we're too shy. We, we're, we're reserved. We think that other people are going to be bored by that question or um, you know, everyone else knows it already, etc. The book liberated me to be a kind of person who would be able to go up to 
works of high culture and culture generally and kind of shake down the tree and, and see what there was for all of us. Uh, and um, uh, so that's, that, that was the kind of personal uh, discovery. And, and that, so in sort of knocking at the door of this colossus and uh, daring to ask these questions about practicality that opened the door to then your career as a writer and exploration of that in, 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 in that sense, is that what you mean? Or is there, are there ways that, that, uh, Proust impacted in the answers that you got back in your exploration, your day to day living? Yes. I mean, I guess both. Um, uh, to, to address the kind of the, your second very good point, I, I think that there were many attitudes that I found in Proust that were incredibly seductive and charming in the in the best sense. So Proust's um, anti-romanticism, but but I mean by romanticism, um, Proust was reacting against many of the things that he saw in the 19th century that he disagreed with. The idea of the individual as a hero, the idea of love as the answer to everything, the idea of um, certain kinds of career success as being, you know, the only way to live, etc. He, he, he took uh, kind of a, a skeptical position vis-a-vis -vis a lot of these things. Um, it wasn't that he rejected them wholeheartedly, but he was a little skeptical, beautifully skeptical. And um, and I found in him a kind of, you could say a kind of maturity uh, that I didn't necessarily possess at that age. I was 26, 25, 26. And, um, and I learned from him. It was like sitting at the feet of a kind of wise person who's seen a few things and who says, you know, steady on, calm down, maybe, you know, look at it this way. Um, and, uh, he, he, yeah, he, he gracefully prized me from certain of my more immature positions, uh, in relation to a, a number of things. Could you give, uh, some examples? Well, for example, you know, I, I'd mentioned love, but it's not that I'm now cynical about love but um in a way he he rather dark Proust rather darkly says you know all of us cannot be understood by another human being perfectly that there is an area of loneliness inside everybody and to blame someone for not understanding you fully um is deeply unfair because first of all, we don't understand ourselves. And even if we do understand ourselves, we have such a hard time communicating ourselves to other people. And therefore, to be furious and enraged and bitter that people don't get all of, you know, all of who we are is, is a real, is a really kind of cruel piece of immaturity. And, um, that came as a real shock to me, you know, as, as a, as a guy in his twenties who, who really thought, no, no, love is this sort of magical communion where, um, you know, I see into their soul, they see into mine, there are no secrets and there is no more loneliness. Um, and I've realized that there's a kind of beautiful intolerance. So both beautiful, but, but really kind of negative. It's, it's, it's the breeding ground of a certain kind of impatience and that's kind of dangerous. And that helped me a lot in my personal relationships. I think it made me a slightly more, more, more patient, more humble kind of person to be around. Mm -hmm. And, uh, well, I have so many questions for you. The, uh, the, uh, this is mostly just a, a, a therapy session for myself disguised as a podcast, but the, um, the, the first uh, question that, uh, that I'd love to ask, um, is 
building on that, I, I, I remember at one point, um, there was a poll or a, some type of research done. I don't know how well it was put together. And it said that, uh, you know, the, the happiest country in the world is Denmark. So based on these various surveys and, uh, the data that's been gathered, the Danish are the happiest people. And I got a comment on a post I put up about this from a Danish person who said, the secret to happiness is low expectations. That's a pretty <laughs> common belief here in Denmark. And I, I, I thought it was very funny. And then I, I, then I, upon looking at it a second time, began to ask, is there actually something there? Right. And if there is, how do you, how do you combine ideally low expectations? So you're not constantly disappointed, i.e. the, the opposite of expecting your loved one to solve all of your loneliness and A, B, C, D, E, F, and G while still striving, um, or, or, or doing great things for yourself or other people. Um, and you of course have written a lot since and done many things and and we'll dig into some of them, but how do you think about that? Um, I think it's such a key question. Um, I I think you're, you're putting your finger on, on a key thing, which is that very often people think that having mature, we could call them mature expectations or slightly low expectations in some areas, um, is going to mean that you lose ambition, that you cannot have ambition and realism. You cannot be sober in some areas and still deeply excited to get out of bed, you know, in, in the morning. Um, I think that's not really true. I think there is, you can have these what you could call paradoxical positions on issues. For example, you know, I, I like to explore the idea of being a cheerful pessimist. And you go, hang on, how, how can you be a cheerful <laughs> pessimist, right? But but if you explore that, you know, um, if you're a little pessimistic, but about how a lot of things go, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be gloomy all the time. You may encounter moments of pure ecstasy as you realize um, that there are some very fine things in a world which is otherwise very dark. Um, I don't think a backdrop of stark realism slash pessimism about all sorts of things that, you know, death and illness can visit us very suddenly without warning, that all our grandest plans can be undone by, you know, a blood clot in under a minute, um, that some of the finest ambitions fall prey to, you know, the meanest realities, etc. That that many of us, perhaps all of us, are going to go to our deathbeds with some very important parts of us still unexplored. Um, I think it's because things are so dark, because we are operating against a backdrop of, of darkness, that, you know, a glass of beautiful lemon juice or a sincere conversation with a friend or a moment when, yes, things do go right and everything does go right. Why these things matter so much and perhaps much more intensely. It's, it's like the joy of the convalescent who's come out of the hospital and they are seeing the sunlight strike, you know, the leaves of a daffodil. And that daffodil seems more beautiful than it's ever done to the robust, you know, football player who hasn't ever, you know, paused to, uh, to appreciate these things. So, I, I, as I say, um, I think it's it, it should be utterly compatible with ambition, appreciation, uh, tenderness, etc., to to keep the really grim things not far from the top of consciousness kind of pretty much every day. 
the who are some philosophers or thinkers uh, that for those people who have uh, a lifelong aversion to the word philosophy and the the concept of philosophy uh, for, for just from a utilitarian standpoint, a readability standpoint, maybe they're not the same, but who, who are, who are some names that come to mind that you would recommend to folks as a gateway drug to, um, to philosophy? Sure. That's such a good question. I mean, first of all, I'd like to apologize on behalf of philosophy. <laughs> it's not my role, to, but I'll do it anyway, playfully. Um, the general public's disinterest and suspicion of philosophy is well-earned. It's deserved. The general public hasn't just forgotten about philosophy by mistake. Philosophers operating today have on the whole forgotten about the public. Um, insofar from my point of view, as philosophy is interesting, um, I think it's it's most interesting at its very in its very opening moves when philosophy begins in ancient Greece and Rome. Uh, it sets out to be therapy for the soul. It sets out to be a, a practical tool that can help you to live and die well. Philosophers in those days are interested in finding out how families work, how money works, how status works, what we should do about public opinion, what we should do about death and illness and ambition, and all of these things that trouble us every day. That was, you know, centrally what philosophers were interested in and, and discussed. And the great philosophers of those days, people like Epicurus, like Seneca, Marcus Aurelius, Plato, you know, these people are all very much uh, worth uh, reading. Um, philosophy continues to be interesting for many uh, centuries. Uh, I mentioned the, the name of Montaigne early on. He's fantastic. Uh, in the 19th century, you've got a, a great German philosopher, Schopenhauer. He's fantastic. You get Nietzsche, who can be read with uh, very rewarding uh, results. When we hit the 20th century, the number of interesting philosophers tails off because something happens to philosophy that is not often remarked upon, which is basically it splits in two. And from my money, the interesting stuff goes into psychology. Freud says that he is a philosopher. Um, and, you know, the whole tradition that comes out of Freud, not just psychoanalysis, but but psychology more generally. Um, the, the interesting stuff about how to live, how our minds work, how to actualize ourselves, how to relate to others, etc. These things become the province of psychology. And throughout its history, philosophy has had a habit of casting off bits of itself and kind of that, 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 spurn, that, that, that spur on sort of subgenres. It used to be that the study of the stars was what philosophies did. Uh, now, you know, that's astrophysics. So um, philosophy has this split in the 20th century. And nowadays, philosophers tend to be really only ever employed by universities, always a danger sign. When, you're, when, when your subject matter, <laughs> your subject matter, when no one will pay directly for your subject matter, that's often a sign that something's gone wrong. Um, so right. no the one, canary in the coal mine is getting a little wobbly. That's yeah, right, right. That's right. So, and, 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 and that's deserved because philosophers don't tell us how to live and die anymore. There are a few. There's a great philosopher who was at Princeton called Martha Nussbaum. She's terrific. There are a few others out there who are doing good work, but really not very many. Not not very many that you would recommend. Let's say, I don't know, you had a friend who was interested in philosophy and was having a little hard time in life. There's very few names that you would recommend. Nevertheless, what philosophy really is, is a discipline 
that's distinct from, say, poetry or religion. But like poetry, it wants to talk about the things that are meaningful. Um, and like religion, it wants to give us guidance. But unlike religion, it's not using the supernatural. There's no appeal to supernatural or, or, or um, you know, mysterious forces, forces you can't define. Um, it's, it's based on anything that you can kind of reason with. Um, and, uh, and unlike poetry, it's not merely interested in kind of beautiful phenomena. It wants to take those somewhere. It wants to inform and, and reform us. So the, the book I wrote after uh, I, I wrote How Proust Can Change Your Life was a book called The Consolations of Philosophy. And in that book, I looked at six great philosophers. I looked at Socrates, Epicurus, Seneca, Montaigne, uh, Schopenhauer, and Nietzsche. And um, I, I looked at these guys as for very practical guidance. It, it was an attempt to say to these great names, how can you show us, you know, what to do and, and, and how to live. Uh, and, um, uh, you know, so that was a kind of classic uh, style that I was developing and, um, and that I was getting good results from. And, uh, you know, that's, that's a book of mine that, that won many readers around the world, and it's still probably the book of mine that sells the best. Um, and it, it's, you know, it does um, what it says on the tin, which is to look for consolations among the work of some great philosophers. Do you uh, consider Bertrand Russell a philosopher? Absolutely. Um, he yeah. I was I was always very impressed. I was introduced to Bertrand Russell before I was introduced to Seneca, and then vis-a-vis Seneca in delving into Stoicism. Uh, of course, he has a very interesting uh, he has a very interesting style of prose and discourse. So he throws in his. Yeah. <laughs> his competition, right? He throws in Epicurus quite a bit as a way to pull in defectors, which is very clever of him and not too surprising if you look at his political <laughs> hardwiring. Exactly. Uh, but, Bert- but Bertrand Russell was the first one, and I'm not sure if it was uh, there's a, there's a I've read several of his books, but you know, Why I Am Not a Christian was one. The Secrets of Happiness? Uh, was it- the Secrets of Happiness um, also, yes. That may have been the first. And that, I, I was struck by how much it uh, it, how strongly it contrasted to most of the philosophy I'd been exposed to. I went to Princeton undergraduate. I did take one philosophy class that was very, very, very good with a professor Rosen. And I'm, I'm blanking on the, uh, I think it was metaphysics and epistemology 101, which I probably couldn't define either of those terms at this point. But professor Rosen was very good. And then the rest that I ran into really seemed like a lot of intellectual masturbation, um, where the, a vast majority of it seemed to focus on uh, semantic tail chasing, like yeah. sort of the the like what does is really yeah. mean, and then they'd go on for six hundred pages of rhetoric, and at the end you're like, I don't think that added any value yeah. to my life. I mean, Tim, I, I so sympathise. Uh, that was my experience as well, and it enrages me and saddens me. And I think that, um, look, I'm you know the, the older I get, the more I realise that. The great challenge of our own age is to take the good ideas and make them available to a wide public. And the universities often do weirdly the opposite. I mean, they, they inform a kind of narrow coterie of students, but there are, they stand outside the kind of democratic project. And that's critical because we live in a mass culture. We live, we live in a world where ideas have to have followings in the millions if they're ever to get traction. 
And when people, you know, wring their hands in despair and go, why don't we do this or why don't we do that or why is the world, etc. Um, a, a, a lot of the reason is that the good ideas are not on network TV. They're not on the mass channels of communication. So that a few people in the Ivy League universities have got full command of, you know, Wittgenstein's later philosophy. But out in the street, there isn't, you know, that democratic pool of knowledge. And, you know, I've always been attracted to the great democrats of knowledge. So someone like Voltaire in 18th century France, he wanted to write for everybody. Um, uh, you know, someone like Emerson in the American tradition, again, he was a man who, you know, toured the country and gave impassioned speeches about the highest and most meaningful things. But he was, you know, in, in the church hall talking uh, you know the language of ordinary people to get his message across, and that seem that seems to have been so hard for many 20th century philosophers. And Bertrand Russell is, you know, in a company of almost just one in 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 his decision that you know here was a guy who he he, he wrote a, he had a column in 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 a, in a in a daily newspaper in England. He wrote articles for American Vogue. He appeared on television. He had a regular radio program. Many philosophers attacked him for this. They said that he was cheapening and, and deadening his subject. But this was a man who knew his stuff. He wasn't going to be bullied and patronized. And he understood that the things he cared about would only live if he managed to get ordinary people properly engaged. So he was a wonderful, wonderful vulgarizer in the best sense. <laughs> no, I I uh, I agree, and I think that one of the challenges is that when you had, say, the the Stoics, right? Stoa, as I understand it, referring to porch, and they would sit in these informal classrooms and talk. I mean, there were other forms, of course, fora, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> I'm not up to speed with my etymology, but the when that translated into a more structured academic setting. Uh, and say the hard sciences had a progression in difficulty, right? Where you, if, if you're going to study at the graduate level, uh, in mathematics, you need to master the prereq, the prerequisites in undergraduate and then algebra and so on before that. And when you take philosophy and force fit it into that type of progression, you go from, uh, not striving to make something useful, but striving to make something difficult. And I think when it becomes difficult, it's inversely correlated to its usefulness. Does that make sense? It's like, well, you can't be a PhD in philosophy until you've made it sufficiently arcane and made the rhetoric so convoluted that only five people at this university are willing to sit down and talk about it for three hours. And it's uh, it becomes this very unfortunate uh, sort of self-cauterizing uh, Structure. Totally, uh, totally. And, you know, the unfortunate thing is that the humanities, so all the great, you know, the great wisdom of the ages, um, at a professional level, they started to have to compete in the 20th century with the sciences for money and attention in universities. And the way that they decided to take the battle is that they sort of tried to turn themselves into pseudo sciences so that they suggested that you would study them like a scientist would, would study. So you would do things like research. You, you would find a poet and you would research the poet and you would do some kind of complicated, weird stuff in the, in the back engine room around the, you know, this person. Previously, the humanities was, wasn't handled. They weren't handled like this. They were handled by, by ordinary lay people who would spend half an hour in the evening dipping into, you know, a, a volume of philosophy or poetry. Um, suddenly this stuff became, the, the subject of kind of, you know, 
study that was akin to studying nuclear physics. Um, and that was all to make sure that the professors would get tenure and that departments would get funding and that governments would be suitably impressed. I can understand and sympathize with, you know, people's need to, you know, progress up the career ladder, but it's been a complete disaster for the rest of us because it's meant that wisdom that was supposed to circulate freely and democratically around the nation has become, you know, bunched up in some kind of centers um, uh, in the universities and, and is, is not doing its job. And uh, meanwhile, you know, uh, well, we know, we know what happens on TV and down the, down the airwaves. How, uh, not how, who do you think, uh, uh, the contemporary thinkers who are doing a good job of popularizing what you might consider philosophy, um, who are names that come to mind? Of course, you're, you are one of the first names that come to mind for most people, but who else would you put on that list? Um, well, I have a colleague that I like very much called John Armstrong, who operates out of Australia, and he's, he's, he writes some wonderful things. Um, there are also, as I mentioned, uh, someone called Martha Nussbaum, who's, who's doing a really uh, nice job. Um, you know, there've been, there've been others. Um, but it's, you know, it, it, it is hard. Um, popularization is, is hard. Um, one of my favorite popularizers is Jamie Oliver, the cook, chef. And what I love about the guy is that he's taught the UK how to cook. Um, and the way he's done that is to speak in the language of ordinary people about some pretty unordinary things like how to cook a, you know, duck a l'orange or something. And he's got working class English males to kind of put on an apron and do some weird stuff. And I think that's what a good teacher is. A good teacher is the person who takes your fear. And we tend to have these fears like, I'm a woman, so I can't, or I come from a working class background, so I can't, or, you know, I'm, uh, you know, an elite person, so I can't. We, we, there are a lot of people have these kind of blocks. I can't do this because of that in my past. And a good teacher says, no, how do you mean? You, you can't do engineering and be a woman? Of course you can. Or, you know, you, you can't be a working class uh, guy and, and read poetry? Of course you can, etc. And that's what a good teacher does. Shakes you free from some of these kind of dichotomies. And uh, so for me, a, a, you know, a good teacher of philosophy is that someone who calms down the audience. Like, you, you know, you thought that because you're a busy dentist, you can't read philosophy. It has no place in your life. Of course you can. Uh, so that's, that's what a good teacher does. And, and you know, there, there are some out there and, and, and we need more. I agree on Jamie Oliver. I have uh, one of his books, Cook with Jamie, about 15 feet in front of me on a shelf next to a couple of other people I would put in that same category of teacher. Uh, you have uh, Seven Fires, which is one many people probably haven't heard of, which is by a Patagonian chef trained in France about how to use fire to right. cook. But the, the underlying... Uh, the underlying principles are the same, whether it's Richard Feynman, the physicist, one of my favorite books, you know, you, surely you must be joking, Mr. Feynman, uh, or Seven Fires or Jamie Oliver. I mean, they're, they are making the, the, the potentially complex simple to encourage the free flow of, of ideas and action. And it's the opposite of making the potentially simple complicated to constrain the flow because you have a scarcity mindset, you have a defensive mindset, which would be the case, I think, for, for many people at the highest levels of academia, which is unfortunate. They feel like if, if they were to popularize, it would, 
uh, it would sort of loosen the soil beneath their feet and remove some stability yeah. in some way. Yeah. Uh, or, ch- or cheapen it. And I'm not sure when that happened. I mean, in the day of, say, I'm, sh- I, 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 there's, there's a book I really need to read called, I think it's Dying Every Day. It's a book about Seneca in the court of Nero, but was, Seneca was a very, very popular writer. Uh, do you have any idea if he was ridiculed and scoffed at by the highbrow philosophers of his day? Or did that is that a recent development? Um, well, he he was ridiculed not for not for that issue, but he was ridiculed for um, making a lot of money, uh, which he did yep. um, in in politics and business, and also um, having a pretty luxurious lifestyle. And people said, "How do you mean? Hang on, how do you mean? You're supposed to be a stoic. You're supposed to be a philosopher. You're supposed to have one cloak and and live in a thing. And you you know your house is pretty nice." And so there was some mockery, and he has some funny answers to that. I mean, he 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 rebuts the charges head on, and um, he says that the true philosopher—it's not the true philosopher—must uh, have no money. It's just that he must be ready to lose it. That he must his hold on it must be relaxed. Right. And um, right. and in fact, you know, this could sound like oh, oh yeah, you know, <laughs> pull the other leg. But but in fact, he did practice what he preached because um, twice in his life he did lose everything. He was exiled. He fell into political disgrace, etc. And um, he he behaved pretty well. Um, and so stoicism is not necessarily stoicism attracted a lot of support among the very wealthy and the very successful because it taught them that they could survive without their wealth and their success. And very often when people get wealthy and successful, they become very scared of what would happen and they feel the need for ever more success and ever more wealth from a fear that if they would have to go backwards, it would be catastrophic. And what's very relaxing and nice about stoicism is that it partly says, well, you know, uh, it, it's survivable. Of course it is. And one of the favorite Stoic exercises that they would perform was that once a month or so, um, a Stoic was advised to wear their dirtiest cloak and sleep on the kitchen floor, Seneca advised, in the dog basket. Uh, I don't know how big that, <laughs> that might be. And you would drink the dog's water. And the idea was that for, for, for a few days, you live like a dog and you realize that that's possible and it's fine. And that removes... Um, fear. And as they understood, coming back to your earlier issue about ambition, they realized that often what stops us from realizing our ambitions is fear. And therefore, if we make ourselves totally at home with failure, totally at home with utter disgrace, we will feel a curious lightness and sense of possibility because we won't be held back by the constant thought, what happens if? We will have fully explored the question, what happens if? We'll have made ourselves so at home and seen that there is nothing so bad about failure. And that will free us to advance more lightly and with greater courage towards some of our goals. I couldn't agree more. And you you were mentioning pessimism earlier. I gave a presentation, I think, in 2008, 2009. It's only five or six minutes long called uh, Practical Pessimism. And it made the point, like like you just did very eloquently, that if you practice the worst-case scenario, and even if you were to view that as pessimism, but a very practical version of it, it actually frees you to be more ambitious. It doesn't teach you to drop your expectations. It just teaches you not to be attached to the expectation of a best case scenario. So it frees you up to swing for the fences because you're not afraid of striking out. At least I found that to be true for myself. And there's a, there's a great essay also out there 
on the uh, the the discussion and the uh, the uh, stone throwing uh, related to Seneca and his wealth. I mean, he was very well known for being wealthy and uh, had his ivory legged tables and so on. There's an essay called the, the Case of the Opulent Stoic, which is a very interesting read on um, how that controversy evolved and where it may be a fair accusation and where it may be an unfair accusation. Um, but uh, What a wonderful essay. Some, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's a great, great name, too, yeah. just like the In Search of Lost Time. Um, the... Uh, where did all this come from? I'm so, I mean, in so much as, <clears throat> where did you grow up? What did your parents do? Could you give us some color as to your, your sure. upbringing? The pre, the pre Cambridge years. Um, so I came from a family, uh, of, um, very displaced, uh, and, and very neurotic and anxious immigrants. My father was born in Egypt. He was part of the Jewish community in Alexandria that got kicked out in the fifties from one day to the next. He then drifted around the Middle East. He eventually wound up as a, as an immigrant, as a refugee, more or less in Switzerland, um, was utterly penniless and desperate. Met my mother who was a part of the Swiss Jewish community. And she, for all her own reasons, her, her family had, her father had recently died. The family had lost everything for having come from quite a privileged background. They then lost everything and she was living, um, in very humble circumstances. Anyway, they found each other, they clung to each other, and they were united in their desire to make it in life and to, to be, you know, ambitious and achieve great things. Um, they did manage to achieve great things. Together, they built up a business. Um, uh, my father, you know, made it big in the world of finance. He always retained a kind of immigrant panic mentality. Um, he, got, he had a Swiss, having not had a passport for long periods of his life, he eventually got a famed Swiss passport and he would treasure that item like nothing else. And every time he crossed a border, every time he went in and out of a country, there would be panic in his eyes as he just thought, is this going to be the moment when they grab me and put me somewhere else, etc. So that was kind of part of his DNA. So it was a fa- I was growing up in a family that was at one level uh, comfortable and you know had, had all the things in life. At another level, there was a deep psychological kind of disturbance and fear. I would say that the dominant mood of my parents was anxiety. And you know, if I returned home in the evening, they would sort of think, oh, you're still alive. And I would go, yeah, sure, I'm, I'm still alive. And they were amazed. Um, and they believe above all in hard work, but to a slightly crazy degree. And I, I, as a child, I observed them and I observed both their successes and their strengths and also some of their vulnerabilities. I realized that these were people who didn't have a very good grasp of their own psychology and um, they did love the arts. Both of them loved the arts very much um, and that I inherited from them. Anyway, I inherited you know, various things. When always, every, every childhood is such a mixed bag of, of things. But um, I came out of that childhood thinking success is important, but at the same time, aware enough of the limitations of success to not swallow uncritically some of the messages about what it means to kind of make it in this world. And so... You know, a lot of my work has been kind of exploring and probing what we mean by success and the challenges it brings, etc. So, yeah, I don't know if that explains some of it. No, no, it adds a lot of very helpful context. I mean, you've written, of course, Status Anxiety, The Architecture of Happiness, 
the news, a user's manual. You, you're prolific, uh, certainly compared to me. Uh, and have you, have you, uh, developed any practices or reminders that help you to mitigate or minimize status anxiety, the keeping up with the Joneses or the fear of missing out, all of these issues that seem to really plague at least a lot of my friends. And I know I, I grapple with these myself. Sure. I mean, um, I think, you know, a, a very vital kind of realization was it's not just me. It's, it's part of being alive today that we, we you know, we, we, we've got this ideology of individualism, you know, what, what historians of ideas call individualism, which is a kind of new idea because we've come from collective societies where your sense of well-being did not depend on anything that you particularly did. You, you were first and foremost part of a tribe, part of a village. You were part of a family. It, your own achievements was only one part and perhaps even only the most minor part of that other, those other sources of identity and sense of self. We've done away with that. Everybody is meant to reinvent themselves. Um, and, that's wonderful and liberating and, and, and was part of, you know, the European and American story in the 18th century. But it's also deeply troubling for many of us. It crushes us because what a burden to bear. You know, what in a way, what unwitting cruelty to say to everyone, you can't rely on where you have come from. You can't define yourself by your group, by your family, by your ancestors, by the nation. You can't believe in nationalism. It isn't enough for you to feel proud of, you know, your group. You have to be proud only of yourself and what you've achieved in the years since you finished your college education or, or, or whatever. That is a heavy and sometimes just overwhelming burden. It's, it's good to realize that we are under this pressure. It's not that that will magically make that pressure disappear, but just to, to be able to know, hmm, no wonder I'm a little twitchy on Sunday evenings as the sun goes down. No, no wonder I get that Sunday feeling when I'm thinking, my God, I've got my dreams on the one hand and my reality on the other, and the gap is too large, and I feel desperate. You know, no wonder we feel that, because that is what the whole system helps us and makes us feel. And I don't want to say that it's all wrong, um, but it is certainly very demanding. Look, my experience of envy and status anxiety, etc., it's a very simple idea. The more you know what you really want and where you're really going, the more what everybody else is doing starts to diminish. It's at the moments when your own path is that it's most ambiguous that the voices of others, the distracting chaos in which we live, the kind of, you know, the, the, the social media static, that starts to loom large and become very threatening. Um, the thing about ourselves is, you know, as you know, we're not very good at understanding what it is that we really want. We're extremely prone to latch onto suggestions from the outside world. You know, like, you know, when every when everybody was saying you know tech was big, uh, a lot of people who never thought about it thought tech was really for them. Uh, when banking was big, people thought banking's for, you know for me. When people te were telling you that you know romantic love is perfect, you think well I must be finding and perhaps even feeling romantic love, etc. So we've got a lot of models out there that don't necessarily suit us, but are deeply powerful. And I think that to calm down, first of all. 
you know, you have to realize that your ultimate responsibility is to yourself, not the neighbors, not your parents, um, not the expectations that were put upon you. This is where the thought of death is tremendously releasing, that your only real responsibility is to, uh, you know, yourself as a kind of mortal, very temporary being, a constellation of, uh, you know, particles and proteins that are hanging together in a particular shape for a few years before disappearing forever. That's you. Um, and there are, you know, more ways to be than, you know, your college, um, you know, graduation speech led you to think. Um, so, yeah, these are some of the tensions of, of the modern modern soul. And I, I found a lot of, this is something I sometimes have trouble uh, verbalizing to people, but um, I find that a lot of Buddhist thought has parallels with, with Stoic thought in terms of whether it's Marcus Aurelius saying, at the end of uh, at the end of a very short period of time, I will be bones and dust on the ground, and that's his like uplifting note to himself in his journal before he goes off to battle. Uh, or it's like a, a Musashi uh, Miyamoto, who is one of the one of, if not the most famous swordsman in Japanese history, who would say probably more or less the exact same thing uh, before setting off on his day. And it sounds very depressing, and it sounds like a downer, but it, it's it for me has been such a helpful reminder and it's it's um sad circumstances but i've had two friends uh die of um unexpected causes very suddenly in the last month and it just it it seems to be all the more important that we have some type of memento mori right some type of reminder of death that uh and in fact i have a friend who's in finance. Don't hold that against him. He's a good guy. Uh, but, uh, he has a, an Excel spreadsheet that calculates and displays on his desk the number of expected hours he has left in his life so that he sees that every day. I don't have that, but in the, for instance, the four hour chef in the author photograph, I put a small skull in the very bottom corner. It's kind of hard to see, but that's what a lot of artists used to do. Not to say that I'm an artist, but that was one of the ways I wanted to constantly remind myself that time is of, uh, time can be very short. You don't, you don't know how much, how many hours you have left on the planet. Um, where do you, I'm sorry. I, I, I was just going to ask, and feel free to, to to take this in a different direction. But w- with the the uh, recognizing that the clearer you have defined what you want, the less fear of missing out, the the less status anxiety, the less suggestive you will be to the 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 madness of the mob. Uh, where would where, what do you where do you want to be in three years' time, for instance? Like what? Uh, what would you like your sort of day-to-day existence to be like, or what would you like to have achieved? It doesn't have to be a professional uh, in the next three years. Sure. Well, I mean, if I can mention the, the, the professional, one of the things that's been really absorbing me in the last few years is, um, well, I was a writer for most of my uh, professional life. And then I always had a sense that writing books wasn't quite enough. And what I mean by enough is I didn't feel that sending people you know, 200 pages glued together was necessarily always going to be the solution to many of the issues that I cared about. I, I, I felt a sort of crisis of the soul where I realized that, you know, this idea of being a writer that I'd wanted so badly when I was younger um, was no longer fully satisfying me because I realized that so many problems um, 
were not going to be amenable to treatment by books, that you needed other things. Um, and that led me to begin an organization, um, which I call the School of Life, which was very much in line with things that uh, I, I've been caring about in my books for a long time. But there were a few differences. For a start, it wasn't just about me. Um, it was actually about gathering, gathering together with a group of like-minded, but, but different people with different talents and different skills and starting something that, um, you know, could be a, a proper collective and an institution. The reason I started where I did was that I read a lot about religion because at a certain point in my kind of crisis about you know, the meaning of being a writer, etc. I got very interested in religions because I thought, religion, I'm, I'm an atheist, I don't believe, but I'm very interested in religions and very sympathetic to many of the things you find in religion. And what I realized that you find in religion is a machine, organization. Religions don't just believe in writing their deepest thoughts down in a book and that's it. They support uh, things by having communal activities, group activities, um, getting very involved in the arts, getting involved in this thing which we call ritual. I mean, we can talk more about that. What is a ritual? But um, ritualized actions, repetition, the repetition of ideas, not just, you don't just read them once. You, you repeat them maybe with other people. Um, uh, you, you might use music to, to get a point across. Um, all of these things fascinated me. And I realized that as religion declined in you know, in Europe in the 19th century, in many parts of the United States, even now, etc. Um, as religion disappeared, it was in many places uh, uh, replaced by culture. You know, people who in previous ages would have been religious got very interested in music and literature and philosophy and all these sort of things. Um, but I realized that those things were missing one thing that religion really did well, which was the kind of the group bit, the institutional bit, the, the embedding in daily life bit. Um, and I thought, couldn't we do some of that now? And I also looked backwards to ancient Greece, and I realized that philosophers, many of them had started up schools. Epicurus had started a school called the Garden. The Stoics had, you know, the Stoa, Plato uh, uh, had uh, the, the um, had his school, the Academy, etc. And um, it's not that I wanted to directly imitate that, but I thought, how interesting that these were people who thought you, it isn't enough just to be you in a book. Anyway, many of these thoughts contributed to my beginning this thing um, that I call the school of life. And it's been the focus of a lot of my energy in the last four years. Um, to give you just a sense of it, uh, this thing has its HQ in London, but we now have 10 branches around the world, including in Australia and the Far East, in Europe, etc. Um, not in the United States yet. But what we do is... Um, we don't. We don't care about that. No, no I, I, you can, we just want big, bigger cars. You, you, care, you care so much, but you know, I can explain why we're not in the United States in a minute. But if you want, I'm just but, kidding. No, no, I'd love, love to be one day, but we're not yet. Anyway, we um, uh, we run classes, we we publish books, uh, we put on events, uh, we run a YouTube channel, uh, we do all sorts of things, and um, and it's just you have some great great videos on the YouTube thanks, channel. I highly recommend it. Thank you. And and you know, really, what all we, what we're trying to do is to take a lot of the stuff that I carry about but but try and find other channels down which to to distribute it i mean your career more than anyone shows you know how that can be done and that is done and so i, I felt a kind of restlessness which perhaps you felt as well at, at, at a certain point about you know what it means to be a writer and um 
and it's perhaps an intersection of writing and business for me and, and uh, learning how to create a business out of something that might previously have just been seen as a kind of romantic inspiration of the kind of lone artist. Um, anyway, all of that's been very interesting. And, and, you know, you ask about the goals in the next few years. I, I really hope to continue to make a contribution there and to make the School of Life as good as it can be, for us to touch as many lives as we can in as diverse a way as we can, um, to, to invite more and more people into this kind of little home we've built. And uh, that was started in 2008? Yes, Is that, that right? Or was it started? Yes, later? yes, 2008, yes, yes. So that that is around the time two thousand eight two thousand nine, uh, after I think partially instigated by the cultural, uh, well I shouldn't say cultural existential and financial insecurity caused by the uh, mortgage backed securities crisis of that time. But I, I developed a, quite a high degree of restlessness about being an author, which led to starting the angel investing and looking at startups as a way to um, using as a means of leverage. So using startups as an Archimedes lever of sorts to translate some of these concepts into the real world in a way that could scale at a very high level. Uh, but l- let me ask you a, a slightly more personal question. So what, for instance, bad habits are you working to overcome at the moment or hope to work on? Let, let's, let's look at the, the mm. present day. I have a million of my own that I usually overshare in Facebook Q and A's and things like that, especially if wine is involved. But, uh, what, what bad habits are you currently working on? If, if um, any? Look, it's a very classic one that, that, you know, so many people, so many of us are, are guilty of, which is not properly communicating. And what I mean by properly is not properly teaching others about myself, what I'm feeling, what I would like, what bothers me. And instead of properly communicating, merely acting out and symbolizing things and expecting to be understood. And this is a constant effort really to um, to not imagine that those around me should mind read. They can't know what I feel <laughs> unless I tell them. And also, they won't hear me unless I speak in a certain way. Um, if I'm agitated and get annoyed quickly, that immediately shuts off communication. If I blame them, that shuts off communication. They will not hear. If I humiliate anyone, that, that message will get lost. So if you're trying to get something across, you know, resist all those bad habits that we all have around communication. I think it's trying to learn how to be a better teacher and a better student. You know, teaching has these sort of weird connotations. You think of like some guy teaching history in a high school or something like that. But in order to have a good life, all of us need to learn how to be good teachers and good students of one another. Because every day creates moments when we need to teach something. We, we need to give somebody a lesson. It may be in, you know, what time we're going to be home tonight or how we're feeling about, um, you know, some event on the horizon or whatever it is. But we're going to need to get something across. And that requires kind of rules and disciplines and just simply blurting it out, simply kind of exploding in some way or emoting in some way is normally the worst way. And at the same time, we have to learn to become students, which is you know, to listen properly, to interpret. Maybe somebody's making a bit of a mess 
of trying to tell you something, but try and listen to what they might be telling you beneath the surface. I've got relatively small kids. They very often don't tell you what they feel. They can't tell you directly what they feel. You have to do some guesswork and a lot of what... You have to deduce. Yeah, you have to deduce. But I think I think you have to deduce from everybody's uh, sake. And, you know, very few of us learn on the spot. You know, if, if, if somebody told me or told you a big central truth about you, you know, the thing about you, Tim, is da-da-da, or the thing about you, Anna, is da-da-da. If that was said, even just vaguely, brutally, or, or, or just even with a little whatever we would shut down. We get defensive. We go, no, that's not true. How do you know? What are you trying to do? Etc. We shut down quickly. We don't absorb that information. And um, we should. We should try and get less defensive. And at the same time, when we're in the kind of giving feedback role, we should really think carefully. So I, I think this whole business of, of listening and feedback is, is a key issue that I'm, I'm, I'm always trying to work on. I'm trying to do the same thing, and that was that was my newly adopted puppy. Also trying to, <laughs> to make his feelings known, to, to trying to trying to communicate. Uh, I've taught her to kick the bells on the door, but <laughs> aside from that, I'm so far failing at at speaking dog. But the uh, I'm trying to do the same thing, and I think that uh, you mentioned the young children. I think if you if you could you can recognize that if you uh, if you were to keep someone from having lunch, keep anyone from having lunch for three or four hours and uh, give them uh, an argument with a spouse or loved one or coworker 60 minutes earlier, that their emotional state will pro- probably be closer to your children than anything else. <laughs> and, and if you assume that when you read their email as opposed to uh, reading malicious intent, I was always, uh, I shouldn't say always, I was told quite some time ago, something that I've, I've enjoyed trying to remind myself of so I don't respond in kind, so I don't volley back something nasty with something nasty, that uh, don't attribute to malice what you can attribute to incompetence. That's very nice. <laughs> and and a, close, a close cousin of that, which I've had to add to it, is don't attribute to malice what you can attribute to incompetence or busyness. Yes. Right. Right. I, mean, I often uh, think someone once said to, to this to me, and I, it's really stuck in my mind, that when people seem like they are mean, they're almost never mean. They're anxious. That's what that's what inspires uh, the behavior that's that good. we read as meanness. But it, it very frequently is not meanness. And these are very basic bits of psychology. But you know, I should say, you know, again, the older I get, the more I think we are relatively simple creatures. Just as you know, to nourish us physically, we need quite basic things: some bread, you know, an olive or two, some water, and off we go. So when it comes to our kind of inner psyches, um, many of the things that we need have an almost breathtaking simplicity. It is things like the person is mean, not worried. They're almost like mantras. They are simple things. And I think we are so highly educated. We, we, we over-educate ourselves out of connection with these simple truths. Um, and they are so key, and this is something, you mentioned Buddhism, this is something the Zen Buddhists are very keen on. Zen Buddhist philosophy and poetry is often unbelievably simple. And, and you, you know, rather than seeing that as an argument against it, um, you know, the great masters will ponder a sentence, turn it over, write it down in ever more, you know, beautiful, refined, but simple ways on a piece of paper, etc. And And I think that we've got 
unfortunately, because of science and the glamour of science, this addiction to the idea that the most valuable things must be very complicated and constantly new, rather than perhaps very simple and repetitions of some basic, quite old truths. And it, it's just, I think we're mixing up uh, a, a kind of source of wisdom in one area, which is you know, flying rockets, with uh, a source of wisdom in another, which is like how to get through your day. And we're, we're misinterpreting what we need for both realms. We're thinking we need the kind of scientific version in personal life, where actually it's really super unhelpful. Yeah, and I think also we tend to, as uh, higher primates with big prefrontal cortexes, uh, cortices? <laughs> I have no yeah. idea. In any case, we want to, uh, if we're having a bad day, we look at these big existential questions as opposed to did I have five olives or should I have five olives? Maybe my blood sugar is just low. That's right. <laughs> That's something. right. I mean, I, I, you know, I love that. Wasn't it Clinton who said that, uh, you know, before when dealing with anyone who's upset, he always asks, has this person slept? Have they eaten? You know, is somebody else bugging them? He goes through this kind of simple checklist. But we are, you know, we know so much when we're handling babies and the baby is kicking and crying, we r- almost never want, never does one say, you know, that baby's out to get me or, you know, she's got evil intentions. We go, you know, she's probably tired or he's, you know, he hasn't had enough sleep or maybe it's too tight around his collar or whatever. We, we, we look for pretty benevolent, often pretty basic explanations. When we, once we reach adulthood, we almost never, I mean, when have we been in a situation with an angry person who's, you know, whatever, uh, we always look at, at the intellectual level. We very rarely go, Wow, this is probably someone who's really pretty tired, or you know, it's uh, you know, it's one o'clock and they've not had anything to eat. So that's where the explanation. It, it offends our self knowledge. It, it offends our dig- our sense of dignity. But it really shouldn't. And as you say, we are a you know an amazing computer sitting on some very very basic bits of of, of software, and not to accept how basic we are is its own version of kind of pretension, and 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 we should resist it. And self-sabotage, in yeah. a way, uh, for sure. Uh, I would love to shift gears a little bit and uh, lob some rapid-fire questions your way. The answers don't need to be rapid, but uh, when you think of the word successful, who is the first person who comes to mind and why? Mm. I, I, I didn't want it <laughs> to, but, um, but unfortunately, Steve Jobs came to mind, and I'm really annoyed about that because I don't actually see, see him as, as the quintessence of, of success. Um, look, I think a successful person is somebody who has taken hold and fathomed their talents, made the most out of those talents, and reconciled themselves to their weaknesses. They're not ranting and raging about their weaknesses. They have a sense of what those weaknesses are. They're not blaming the world for them. They know them. They own them. At the same time, uh, they've had a sense of their strengths, and they've been able to make something of those strengths. And maybe that thing's relatively modest, but they've still managed to externalize those strengths. That's asking a lot. That is a successful life. Very few of us are lucky enough to get there. Um, but I think that's what it might be. Who, who would be a someone, not Steve Jobs, mm. uh, who certainly was prone to ranting and raving, and I'm not sure how aware he was of <laughs> many of his weaknesses, but uh, who, who would be an exemplar of that for you? It's funny. I've, I've, I was recently in, in Switzerland, where I, I come from, and um, when I was little, I was 
partly brought out by my parents, but also, also partly brought out by a very kindly lady who lived with us in the, in the family. She was helping the family, etc. And she was almost like a second mother to me. And she's now 83 years old and lives in an isolated Swiss village. She's in amazing health uh, for her age. And she is a true saint. In, she's not religious, but you know, if you wanted to offer somebody up to science as somebody who is well balanced, you won't read about her in the newspaper. You won't, you know, see her face, etc. But you actually sit in her kitchen and you talk about politics with her. You talk about child raising. You talk about the meaning of life. This is a person with an inherent ballast who's no nonsense, who knows how to be kind, who knows how to laugh, who knows, etc. And you know, the world is full of such people, people who represent what you might call an ordinary genius, an ordinary genius of the business of living. Oh, I like that. And, and we, we, we walk past these people because they don't star in any of our you know, uh, calendars. I, I'd go so far as to say that perhaps a few more of them are women than men, um, and uh, they are utterly unheralded, uh, but, but they are out there, and they are the true philosophers. Yeah, I guess that could be contrasted with the extraordinary hubris that we seem to worship, uh, oftentimes. Sadly, that's right. But- that's right. I mean, that, that's why I was kicking myself when, you know, the very word success has become contaminated by our ideas of someone extraordinary, very rich, etc. And, um, and that's really unhelpful that ultimately to be properly successful is, you know, to be at peace as well. You know, I, I've seen too many people who are so-called successful who are not at peace and, um, Right. You know, that's a problem. Well, and, and not to be too cliched about it, but I think that uh, it's easy to define success as uh, is getting what you want. Uh, but for those people you mentioned with that internal ballast, that ordinary genius, they also want what they have, right? They appreciate what they have, which I think is uh, not nearly as taught or studied as the achieving of what we want, unfortunately. Absolutely. And, and, you know, you say taught. I mean, we need reminders of this. We, that's, you know, we're otherwise people go, Oh yeah. You know, when you tell someone that they go, Oh yeah, that's obvious. I knew that. And you go, yeah, but is it alive? There's such a difference between an idea being in theory in your brain and alive in your brain. And those kind of ideas about appreciating every day, et cetera, are generally not alive in our brains. And that's a problem of art, really. They are not artistically alive. And um, that's something to bear in mind. What is the book that you've given most as a gift, aside from your own? Book or books? Hmm. Well, there was a stage um, before I, I got married and when I was on the dating scene, um, when I gave a lot of copies, this was the 90s, I gave a lot of copies of Milan Kundera to people. It, it suggested The Unbearable Lightness of Being was a, a book that I, I gave out a lot. Um, I don't know if I still would, but I do admire uh, this Czech writer very much. And um, and, and, it, and it has all kinds of wisdom and, um, and it's beautifully written and, and impactful as well. I've given quite a lot of copies of Montaigne's essays to people down the years. Um, and, um, I've not given Proust because it's a little heavy. Um, but yes, that, that kind of thing. Thank you. And for the, those people, we, his name has come up a bit, uh, or, or several times in this conversation, Montaigne. There's a, uh, there's a post by Ryan Holiday, an introduction to Montaigne on the blog. For those of you who want to check it out at fourhourworkweek.com. And I'm sure that, um, 
that will be linked to in the show notes as well as everything that we've talked about so far. Uh, what is something you believe that other people think is insane? Hmm. Or many other people. It doesn't have to be everyone. But what is something you think that most other people think is yeah. insane? Um, I believe in the nanny state. We live in a very you have that you have that expression in the states right the nanny state oh yes yeah, yeah. so I believe in the nanny state um, it, I'm not coming at it from the left or the right it's almost you know irrespective of that but I believe essentially in a public sphere which should offer guidance I think the idea of the neutral public sphere where for example um, it's just completely left to the market to decide. You know, and if you've got the money, you buy an advertisement. You know, if, if you if you want to pay for a billboard, pay for a billboard, etc. Um, and I think that, you know, I'm 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 interested in the way that we went from religious societies which guided people towards important truths to a, to societies that have just left everyone completely alone. So in my utopia, um, there would be a lot more guidance. Um, I, I I am a believer in because I've needed so much guidance um i would i would be re- i would pay you know real attention to what's on the airwaves for example um in, in the uk at the moment where i'm based um the government is thinking hard about what it should do with its gigantic television station the bbc that it gives millions in fact billions of pounds to every year and it's wondering what it should do with it and the argument seems to be seems to res- be quite a sterile one but my view should be on the national broadcaster should be programs that systematically address all the largest failings and dilemmas of the nation, including, you know, for the failures of around parenting, around uh, family breakdowns, around violence, around anxiety, uh, around uh, loneliness, etc. We know government statisticians know what the problems are in you know large populations but we they refuse the tools that they have like say the bbc and the idea is well no one should tell anyone how to live there's such a fear of fascism communism um and i can't help thinking that we have made a bogeyman here that that isn't really the threat um the real threat is that we are drowning in chaotic noise and unable to find a kind of balance um and i think that um you know i'd be up for a little bit more vigilance about that and a little bit more nannying of the best kind so that's the kind of thing that i'm very careful not to tell you i don't know why i've told you and your millions of listeners now but 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 i you know it's i I, i'm aware you know because i i use youtube a lot and i'm aware that if you if you put anything out there that says even anything like that an unbelievable torrent of messages comes through along the lines of you're a communist or you're a fascist or um, you're trying to infantilize me or blah, blah, blah. And my view is always, hang on a minute, you know, we're all adults. And when you know you're an adult, you can also admit that actually seeking help, therapeutic help in the broadest sense, is part of adult life. That saying, you know, no one teaches me anything. I'm just my own person. Totally. Uh, is a kind of slightly brittle version of uh, maturity. And I'm interested in a more dependent relationship on others where we can seek help, where we're not offended if someone offers help to us because we can turn it away, but we're not offended by the offer of help. And so these are some of the things that I think about late at night and it would offend and frighten everybody. 
<laughs> so a couple of a couple of thoughts. The first is uh, on the art of asking. I think Amanda Palmer, the musician, has a lot of interesting things to say that uh, people could benefit from from checking out. The second is um, on the uh, being called a fascist. I think that YouTube. I, I love it. God bless it. But. If you scroll to page four or five of comments, I think on any video, even <laughs> if it's Kitten playing the piano, you're going to have Hitler and of fascism course, in there somewhere. Uh, the, the, uh, then the third piece I would say is in terms of this, the, the state or the government offering guidance or maybe even differing positions on some of these bigger moral questions and life questions, I think that there might be a forcing function. And that forcing function uh, could be artificial intelligence yes. and things like autonomous cars. I think technology, oddly enough, the most cutting-edge technology is going to drive a reversion in some ways or return to some of the oldest philosophical quandaries and thought experiments uh, that, that we have, that we, that, that we visit in, say, a freshman seminar and think of as irrelevant, like, uh, you know, the trolley scenario or the fat man blocking the cave with four people inside who are going to starve. But when you translate that to modern day, I mean, even right now, uh, there are tech companies hiring uh, what they might consider utilitarian philosophers, like the, the um, along the lines of, say, a Peter Singer, uh, to advise them on some of these questions. For instance, if you have to program a car that is going to make decisions in um, disaster scenarios, like uh, there's there is something in the middle of the road, I have to swerve. Do I choose to hit? the six old ladies on the right-hand side or the two school children on the left side? How do you make that calculus? Right? And so I think that in in some ways, technology might force the state uh, or, or governments of various types uh, to take a more active role in this type I, of conversation. I, I, yeah. because I, think you're, I think that's yeah. absolutely right and fascinating. And I, I too, have been very interested in, in artificial intelligence of late. And I think that um, what we're talking about is the broad recognition that we are not very good at making decisions, that our brains are extremely faulty in all sorts of ways. At the same time, we have this idea that no one should tell us how to live. And what can slightly break the logjam is uh, big data, scientific information, so that in the Google of, you know, in 50 years' time, you will say, you know, who shall I marry? And the answers will really be quite accurate and personally attuned to you and akin to having gone to psychotherapy for 10 years in their level of awareness of, you know, the issues facing you. Um, so I think you're absolutely right that artificial intelligence will um, break through many people's resistance to insights, which currently, because they're not based on science and hard data, seem uh, are just too vulnerable to being shot down by the, by the kind of line of, like, you know, who are you to say? No. It doesn't have any fact behind it. Uh, they may be right, but right. because because we, we live in a society that's quite obsessed by science and, and and facts and won't accept things unless they're backed up by facts and science, we may just need to wait a little until some of these more humanistic truths and insights have got the backing that is required to to allow them to have sort of mass uptake. Oh, agreed. And I think that uh, another... Uh, Another factor will will sort of drive together in confluence 
certainly with other things, uh, to AI or incorporating AI. And that is virtual reality. I just had, uh, I, I was not a true believer <clears throat> until, uh, less than a week ago. I had a virtual reality demo that I can't go into too many details about because it's not hugely public that completely blew my mind. Right. I mean, the, the experience was so lifelike and so compelling that, uh, it, it, it made me wonder, uh, more than ever if we're in a simulacrum of our own, of, of some type. But uh, it will raise questions such as, I mean, when you are in a three-dimensional, immersive, photorealistic environment, and most certainly there will be uh, tactile components and so on, olfactory components, th- those will come at some point. When will games be permitted, for instance, that rather than being relegated to a 2D surface on a television, allow you to kill someone, blood, bludgeon someone to death, uh, or, I mean, much worse, right? The, the, are those going to be in any way regulated, or are those going to be allowed? You know, and what, what effect does that have versus a more a video game-esque in the traditional sense experience, right? So, it's um, scary. It, it's very terrifying, but at the same time, I think holds a lot of promise. Um, let me um, completely abruptly transition to <laughs> <laughs> another short question, which is: uh, What is your favorite do- documentary or movie? Or what are what are what are some of your favorite documentaries? Or well, I very much enjoyed a documentary which I don't know if you'll know called Seven Up, which was done in the UK, um, and it, what it did is is it followed a group of children um, every seven years, starting from their seventh birthday. And these children were um, picked deliberately from wide uh, variety of social backgrounds, different kind of families, etc. And every seven years, these kids were revisited and um, we traced their lives. And of course, you know, this is one of the things that art can do for us. It, it kind of traces lives over time spans that we normally you know can't have access to so um now these people are you know in their 50s and they're still making the documentary um and uh, and it gets updated every seven years every seven years there's a new thing and it's a kind of it's a weird feature of british life like everyone knows seven up sort of thing uh and it just comes along every every seven years and we know these people and their lives show such a variation, ups and downs, and sometimes, you know, sometimes things are going really well, other times are going terribly, etc. And it, again, it's it's so much the art I like. It's it's very much attuned to the everyday. It's concerned with, broadly speaking, with wisdom and how we can live. And um, very undramatic, but quietly so powerful. It's for my money, it's probably the best documentary that exists. I very much recommend it. Um, so that's wow. one that comes well, to mind. That's a, that's a strong endorsement. I'll have to. I will. Uh, I'm on a tear with Doc, so I'll have to check Please. that out. The uh, what is a purchase of a hundred dollars or less that has positively impacted your life in the last six months? Um, I've really discovered the pomegranate. And the pomegranates <laughs> were just a weird thing. I, n- I never even knew they existed. Really, I knew the word. I just didn't know what it was. Anyway. Uh, Someone told me about pomegranates and that they could be really interesting thing to 
to eat and make part of one's diet. And um, it's it's a thing I now regularly have. Uh, they're not cheap. Each one, you know, is, is a few pounds. And um, but they're they're deliciously weird. And um, you know, you think, wow, you know, it's it's great. This kind of thing exists on this on this little blue dot. Um, this, this thing grows so that's 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 brought me constant constant pleasure upon the life of pomegranates how do you how do you consume your pomegranates what is your preferred sort of method and and uh, to, time of to, day uh, for pomegranates? To, to split them in half and then while you've got your hand with your fingers slightly open over the, the pomegranate face down into the palm of your hand you then strike the pomegranate hard with a wooden spoon which gets the seeds to shake out they go into a little bowl oh um, that's a good yeah, trick yeah you, good you trick. hit it a few times and out out they fall and um and, and you, it's just a, it makes a delicious kind of snack and and you feel good and you feel virtuous but it's it's nice as well um so i really recommend that i i think all in my ideal nanny state um you know there would be pomegranates in every Pomegranate, every, uh, pomegranate ra- rations that, for that's every right. citizen. That's right. They would they would be forcibly on sale in every gas station across the United States, and I think I think genuinely the health, but more importantly the happiness of Americans would rise exponentially. <laughs> I love it. Uh, what I used to love eating grapefruits in the morning. My grandmother used to used to use brown sugar on sort of pre cut grapefruits that we could scoop out with special grapefruit spoons so that that, that this is this is making me long to yeah. eat pomegranates <laughs> uh what um what rituals you mentioned rituals earlier what rituals are important uh for you on a daily basis uh, my the listeners often like evening i'm sorry morning routines but it doesn't have to be morning what what rituals or routines uh, do you find very valuable, important in your life? Well, you know, there was a lot of talk a few years ago and still now of meditation and mindfulness and getting into a, a certain state. And, um, and I, I thought a lot about this and I thought, why is it that it's not quite working for me as it's defined, but that there's something here that I really like. And I realized that what I love doing at the end of the day or at the beginning of the day is to kind of download my brain, is to just download those thoughts that are buzzing around, slightly shapeless, slightly directionless, and they need a little help. And if I don't get to grips with them, they will disturb my sleep or they'll wake me up early. So what I like to do is just sit with a pad and paper and write down in very small, slightly scrawly, legible handwriting, lots of things. It could just be a word, uh, an image, something, and they will be the starting points of things, you know, books have begun out of one word that I sort of caught in my, and it's a, it's a kind of housekeeping. It's a kind of intellectual housekeeping. I like to call it a kind of philosophical meditation where you just, yeah, you, you just turn over what's going on in your mind. And I think insomnia, I went through a stage of having insomnia. And I think that insomnia is a kind of revenge, all the stuff that you haven't thought about enough that's, demands to be thought about and will wake you up in order that it gets its fair share of of thought and if you can do that before bed um uh, with a pattern paper it can be you know the best uh uh you know sleeping pill you've you've ever had do you have a particular type of journal or pad that you like to use um i'm unfussy i'm pretty unfussy about what i write on all kinds of of pads um i have a a wonderful 
Japanese pen called a Pilot. You know, those Pilot pens, and it's called a GTEC C4. And I write religiously only with those. I'm also very, I'm the last person on the planet to work with a BlackBerry. And I write all sorts of thoughts down on a BlackBerry. Um, uh, and, and that's very helpful too. So those are my tools. That's, uh, so you share the BlackBerry, the sort of uh, vestigial BlackBerry, in common with a friend of mine named Neil Strauss, oh, right. who has written I, seven or I eight New York Times bestsellers. I feel honored. <laughs> I mean, it's, a, it's an odd feeling. You feel very left out, and um, there should be a support group started uh, because it's a, it's a very isolated position to be in. And one questions one's own sanity sometimes. One thinks one will go over to the light side soon, but one just can't do it. And, and yeah, there we are. <laughs> Uh, if you could have just a few more questions, if you could have one billboard anywhere with anything on it, what would it say? Um, well, I think it would, it would probably pick up on the need to appreciate, the need to be kind. Um, I mean, it could be, it could be something stark. I mean, it sums up what we were saying. It could, it could say you have only, you know, an average life is however, how many, how many hundred thousand of hours? You, you know, this figure. Oh, I well, don't. I, you know, I maybe if I were better caffeinated and okay, well, what, this, let, could... life is okay. <laughs> it would say life is only four hundred thousand hours long. Be kind, or something like that, just to grab mm-hmm. the motorist as they're speeding down the highway at insane speed. Um, something like that. <laughs> I like it. And what advice would you give your thirty-year-old self? Um, calm down. And 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 where would you be? At thirty, what uh, what's the sort of surrounding context? Um, I mean, what was it, or what should it be? No, no, no. Where was, were you? Well, where, I, where, where, where were you? In I life mean, thirty was a it was a weird year. Um, my father died when I was thirty, very surprisingly. So I was suddenly in a in a kind of different different place, and that was very shocking. At the same time, it was a very successful year. My, my book, The Constellations Philosophy, came out. Um, I, I met my wife. Uh, my, my, she wasn't then my wife, but I met uh, the person who became my wife that year. So it was a kind of um, a, a year of many things. I mean, I think I think I would have also said, you know, appreciate what's good about this moment. Um, don't always think that you you know you're on a permanent journey. You know, stop and enjoy the view. Um, this is life too. I think it it took me a long time to kind of dare to appreciate the moment because I always had this assumption that if you appreciate the moment, you're weakening your resolve to improve your circumstances. Um, that's yeah. not true. But I think when you're young, it's sort of associated with that. And even things like flowers, you see, I had people around me who would say things like, oh, isn't that flower nice? And a little part of me was thinking, you absolute loser. You've taken time to appreciate a flower. Do you not have bigger plans? I mean, is this, is this the limit of your ambition? Um, and I think that, you know, <laughs> when life's knocked you around a bit, when you've seen a few things and time has happened and you've got some years under your belt, you think, hmm, you start to think more highly of, of modest things like, like flowers and a you know, pretty sky and, or just a morning when nothing's gone wrong and everyone's been pretty nice to everyone else and things are pretty nice and it's, you know, it's coming up to 11 o'clock or 12 o'clock and things, things are going well and you think, that's nice. No one's died. No one, everyone's okay. Um, you, you, it makes you a little bit more modest and I didn't have that at all at 30 and I think it was a kind of when people talk about the you know, young people being ungrateful you often go like how do you mean they're ungrateful it's not un- it's not ingratitude it's anxiety again but but I mm. wish that I could have 
reassured my my anxious self and 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 just said you know that there is time to look out of the window and and spot those flowers that's great advice it's advice i need to take to heart also i think i've i've done better uh it's funny you mentioned flowers because specifically when i go on walks i make a point says thanks to my girlfriend uh to stop and smell uh, yeah. flowers whether it's with the dog or otherwise just as a brief pause but um, I think that, you know, ambition can be a wonderful tool, and, but it's a terrible master. And it's, it's also something that for the most part you cash in in the future. And the and future may not come, as we know. The, exactly, yeah. exactly. And, and it, it reminds me of this you know, story that, uh, Neil Gaiman, the writer, tells. I think it might have been in his commencement speech, Making Good Art, which everyone should watch. You just Google it, but uh, what he 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 was reflecting on uh, signing books for Sandman, which was his his first real huge hit, and signing comic books in this case. And uh, Stephen King, I believe it was, said, "You know, enjoy this moment." And he didn't. He was he was he was wrapped up in. I, I can only imagine. You'd, looking two years in the future, three years in the future, striking while the iron is hot, whatever it might have been. And I think that's something that uh, that I need a constant reminder of. Uh, and the journaling, as you mentioned, I think also helps with that. You know, there's a funny thing. My, my wife and I, we, well, she spotted that I, I kept talking about cancer and, uh, you know, kept saying things like, well, I don't have cancer yet. And, you know, what happens if one day I, I, I get cancer? And so when we now have this joke uh, between us, because <laughs> this, I kept putting it like this, and so now she goes. Remember, we're in the years before your bowel cancer, and she's she's <laughs> partly teasing me. She's kind of teasing me, but but really, what we're saying, you know, she goes. Remember, it's before the bowel cancer, um, and it's really a way of saying, kind of, my God, you know, things can get very miserable um, very quickly. It only takes a very few cells to subdivide in the wrong way, and a lot of what seems important now will just no longer be and yeah we just have to keep that in mind all the time these today which seems so incomplete from so many ways and you know maybe frustrating in this and that way today may be the day that you know in a week you will look back on as paradise um, because we are so it it could always get so much worse and i think partly it's having children as well you know, we're very much at the mercy of fortune. You know, the Stoics talked a lot about fortune. Fortune can do anything with us. You know, we are very fragile creatures. You only need to tap us or hit us in slightly the wrong place and we are done for. And the kind of levels of tragedy that can be, you know, all of us, you only, you don't have to push us a little bit and we crack very easily, whether that's, you know, the pressure of disgrace or physical illness or financial pressure, etc. It doesn't take very much. And, um, yeah, so, we we do have to appreciate every day that goes by without a major disaster. I think that's a great a great place to wrap up. Uh, I love your work. Where can people find out about uh, what you're up to online? Find you on social, etc. How can they say hello? What would you like them to check out of yours first, perhaps right. if they're unfamiliar sure. with your work? Well, they can come and see my website, which is my name, alaindeboton.com. They can come and see me at on Twitter, just at Alain de Botton. 
Um, I run a YouTube channel via the School of Life. So come and check out the School of Life at schooloflife.com and, and come and look at the, some of the films that I make there. I make, I make three films a week. So there's a lot of stuff out there. Um, I write a, a blog at something called thebookoflife.org. Um, so you'll see a lot of my pieces on all sorts of things. So take a look around. There's quite a lot in the, in the digital space and it's quite a lot that's free. And if you want to buy a book, well, Amazon has them all and all the big, big stores too. So, um, yeah, that's, that's me in, out there in the world. If you could recommend, uh, one video and one piece of writing of yours to start with, what would you suggest? Um, well, if we're talking about, uh, um, we were talking a lot about, um, Proust. Um, actually, no. Now, let me recommend something else. There's a film on my YouTube channel called Higher Consciousness. It's a rediscussion of this strange term. We sometimes got about higher consciousness. What is it? What does it mean to achieve higher consciousness? So, punch into uh, to um, to the School of Life YouTube channel. Punch in higher consciousness, and you'll get this film about I don't know how to look at the world in you know with higher consciousness. And then, if you want to read something, go and check out How Proust Can Change Your Life. Um, I think it's still it's a book that's still holds up after all these years and um it's got a lot of things that i deeply believe in so so check that out wonderful well yeah i i really admire your work i enjoy your work and i would love for you to continue doing your work before the bowel cancer of course and I really appreciate you taking Tim, the time. Uh, and if you're, you're an incredibly generous host person and an incredibly gifted communicator, speaker, writer, inspirer. So it's been a tremendous honor for me. Um, thank you so much. I'm, I, I know you've, you've done me a serious service in doing this and I fully recognize it. Bowel cancer or no bowel cancer. It's fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> this has been, this has been really fun. Uh, and. Everybody out there, everything we talked about, you will be able to find in the show notes. Uh, that is at fourhourworkweek.com, all spelled out. Click on podcast, and you can find this and all previous episodes, and you'll be able to find the books, the articles, the thinkers, everything that we mentioned in this conversation. And until next time, of course, thank you for listening. And Alang, I hope to see you in person sometime soon. And thank thank you, again. you so much. Bye-bye. Hey guys, this is Tim again. Just a few more things before you take off. Number one, this is Five Bullet Friday. Do you want to get a short email from me? Would you enjoy getting a short email from me every Friday that provides a little morsel of fun before the weekend? And Five Bullet Friday is a very short email where I share the coolest things I've found or that I've been pondering over the week. That could include favorite new albums that I've discovered. It could include gizmos and gadgets and all sorts of weird shit that I've somehow dug up in the uh, the world of the esoteric as I do. It could include favorite articles that I've read and that I've shared with my close friends, for instance. And it's very short. It's just a little tiny bite of goodness before you head off for the weekend. So if you want to receive that, check it out. Just go to fourhourworkweek.com. That's fourhourworkweek.com, all spelled out, and just drop in your email, and you will get the very next one. And if you sign up, I hope you enjoy it. Enjoy it.